Welcome to the Lift Church podcast. We pray that this message encourages you and inspires you to live up to your God-given potential. Good morning, everyone. How are you guys going? Good to see you, Dave, all the way from Albany. <laughs> Good to have you with us. <laughs> I can't believe people actually clapped. <laughs> You're popular. <laughs> well, this morning... Um, Got to do a bit of a book club with you guys. Look at me with all my stuff. So, all right, let me just settle myself. You know, this morning we are starting a brand new series. It's called Because He Lives. And um, Easter is literally in three and a half weeks' time. That's crazy. I mean, it feels like we literally just started the year and it's Easter already. And um, so we wanted to do a series all about why Easter is so significant, why Jesus is so significant. And um, so that's what this week is going to be about. And then next week, Pastor Beck will be preaching. Uh, She'll be talking about, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. You love that song? You see what I said to Beck? I think what we do, because he lives, one of the weeks needs to be, I can face tomorrow. And Beck was like, what? Why is that so significant? It's like, don't you know the song? And she was like, no. I was like, it's an oldie. I'm an oldie. Beck's supposed to be an old soul out of both of us. She drinks tea and knows Elvis Presley and, um, and Johnny Cash. I'm all about that. I don't know. <laughs> I was going to say some band names, and I was like, none of them are very appropriate. <laughs> like chain smokers. It's like, you shouldn't say that in church. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> just moving on. Anyway, I'm currently, as I said, book club. I'm reading this book, and uh, it's called The Australian Light Horse. And this basically is a um, book detailing how um, the Australian light horsemen uh, fought in World War I in the Middle East and um, how they played a significant role. And basically, why I picked up a book this big, um, it, it's bigger than my Bible, you can see that. It's, it's a huge book, and I'm nearly about four-fifths of the way through. I'm very proud of that. And, um, and the reason I picked this up from an op shop, you can see it. Uh, I'm not normally that bad in my books, but this one's watermarked and is a bit old. Um, but I picked this up from, um, from an op shop because, I don't know, I just had this, this revelation, I guess, in this moment where I was like, Anzac Day is massive for Australia. Do you guys know Anzac Day? Yeah? Um, and the honest truth is the only reference point for me for Anzac Day was that I had a day off. And, um, and so it's like, yay, day off, awesome. In Australia, we have any reason for a day off, you know. Let's celebrate pork, let's have a day off, or, or whatever it is. And so, um, in a sense, I never understood the significance of Anzac Day. And I thought, being an Australian, uh, I wanted to know a little bit more about why Anzac Day was so significant. And so I started to read the book. And, um, and honestly, after starting to read this book, there was this... I don't know, it was, I almost felt ashamed. I felt ashamed because of how flippantly I had treated Anzac Day. I was like, really? I just was like, yay, days where the beaches are crowded, so I'm going to stay at home and enjoy the air conditioning. And I, that was kind of my, my the, the way I celebrate Anzac Day, or, or whatever it was. But this book detailed some of the sacrifice and the heroics that took place um, in 1915, 19, uh, nearly a century ago. 
And yet those events that took place, they leave a legacy for us today. When I'm reading this, I've, it's kind of strange. I feel more Australian because I have been reading this book. <laughs> you know, when you come to Australia, you hear things like the larrikin spirit. You hear about mateship. You don't know anything about the larrikin spirit or mateship until you hear what these men went through. Uh, you know, I love, I love reading about how um, these guys, right, these farmers, these ranch hands, these, these men, normal people, settlers in Australia, who, by the way, hadn't been gone for that long. Australia at that point had only officially be become a colony for like, Six, uh, 15 years, it was very new, and, and the bulk of the people there were convicts. This is their background. And then they, would, uh, they, they signed up, they went to war, they got to this place, and the British officers hated us. They hated us, you know why? Because we didn't salute them. <laughs> Australians did not care about saluting officers. You want to know about the larrikin spirit? It got started back in those days where everyone had a fair go. It wasn't about, I'm feeling so Aussie right now. Put a shrimp on a barbie, you flaming galah. <laughs> you know, it's like they, they didn't care to salute because there wasn't a class system. And, and that was amazing. But then I started to read about the actual wars and the battles that they fought. And, and obviously, many of us have heard of Gallipoli, but how many of us know what took place in Gallipoli? And I started to read those pages, and, and basically, the Anzac forces, as well as the British, were at a stalemate between them and the Turks. The, it was trench warfare. It, it was this place, and they were facing off. It was, they, they, they couldn't, uh, neither one could take any territory. And, and the, the commander of the Allied forces decided that we need a victory. And so they, they, they came up with this amazing, elaborate plan. So elaborate that it couldn't work in reality. It required a level of coordination that was not available in that season, in that, in that space. And so things rapidly fell apart. And, and the generals, the people that had to outwork this plan, they, they knew that they were headed for, uh, for the fight of their lives. For example, there was, uh, what was supposed to happen was that they were supposed to have this artillery shelling that was supposed to stop, uh, stop the Turks from being able to pop their heads up over the trenches and see where the Allied forces were. And um, basically, under that cover, the Allied troops were supposed to rush out and take the trenches that the Turks were holding. Um, at the same time, the Allied troops weren't given much ammunition. They were given minimal ammunition because they wanted to motivate these troops to charge at all costs. They, they, they gave them bayonets, uh, which basically is just a, um, a, a sharp steel knife at the end of your, your rifle, and they basically said, you're not supposed to shoot, you're supposed to charge and stab until you take over uh, the Turkish trenches. Well, the artillery stopped a whole minute and a half before it was supposed to, and it left the Australian soldiers uh, in no man's land. They, they had to go through this, uh, this layout which kind of funneled them into this little space where there was a Turkish machine gun pointing straight at them. So basically, they said charge under no cover, and, and that was the kind of battles that were taking place because the coordination fell apart. But yet, even with that taking place, with that in mind, where people were like, this plan is not a very good plan, you know what was taking place? Anzac soldiers were faking recoveries from illnesses to join their mates. 
They, they weren't like, oh, I got a bruise in my shin and I can't run. I was like, oh, I dislocated my pinky or, or whatever. They, they were saying, no, I'm all good. Some of them were bribing officers to put them on the very front line because they didn't want to let their mates down. In the middle of the fights, there were guys that volunteered to hold sandbags because grenades would get thrown into the trenches and the guy with the sandbag, the moment they see the grenade, they jump on it with these sandbags to stop the shrapnel from flying away. Now, if they do it right, it actually works. I was like, what? <laughs> How does this work? Anyone want to try? Anyone want to have an experiment? No? Okay. I thought that wouldn't work. But, um, but if they jumped on it too slow, the person that was holding the sandbags, they were the one that would bear the brunt of what was taking place, losing limbs, losing lives. That was the kind of stuff that was taking place. But it wasn't just a sacrifice. It was the ingenuity, the initiative that Australian soldiers just seemed to have that the, the, the stiff, stiff upper lip British didn't seem to, to, to have. And I, I just read this story uh, just a couple of nights ago. Uh, I shouldn't say call it a story. It's this account. There was a, basically they had attacked this town, um, this city that was of some significance, and, and uh, they had taken uh, the Turkish by surprise. By the way, the Germans were um, working with the Turks, and so they had some Germans over there kind of instructing the Turks what to do. And this one lone horseman, Notice that there was a German officer instructing a bunch of Turks to set up another machine gun, which would then be disastrous for a whole bunch of the horsemen. So what he did is that he alone, because he noticed it, and when you're on horses, you're kind of not really in a space where you're like, hey, come with me or coordinate anything. So he just, he's like, I've got to do something about this. So he went. He went and did something about it. He took out his revolver. He charged at them and realized that his revolver was empty. All the women are like, all the guys are like, yeah, buddy, this is going to be good. Well, you know what he did? He just continued his charge, waving his gun, shouting at them, and he caused the German officer to give up his rifle. (laughs) And then he takes a whole bunch of them captive. How crazy is that? I'm like, only an Australian could do that. And then only an Australian, right? Only someone with the, the guts and the initiative, that the understanding of, if I don't do something about this, my mates are going to get into massive amounts of trouble. And so even at the cost of my own life, I'm going to do something about it. When I read stories, and that, there's one of hundreds of stories of individuals that even though they are named in this book, that's not what they were chasing. They were simply fighting because they knew that the fight was there and someone needed to do it. They didn't give up easily. Yes, they had some discipline issues, many discipline issues, and and many things that were just not working out right, but that is kind of the backdrop of Australia. Reading that gave me a far deeper appreciation of this land that I live in and and the life that I get to live and a, a little bit of the values and cultures that we see in Australia to this very day that I love, that I've never really quite understood, even though, uh, you know, we hear about have a fair, get a fair go, you know, you know, mateship, you know, sure. But when you understand that people were willing to sacrifice their lives for that, it means so much more. And, you know, reading that also made me kind of consider something else. Do you know about 2,000 years ago, 
there was a man who died. He died a criminal's death, executed on a cross, one of the most cruel executions. No one could lay any charges on him. And, um, and to this day, we celebrate an event that took place over 2,000 years ago. And I'm talking obviously about Easter. It's already been set up, but I guess what I want to ask you this morning is, do you understand the significance of Easter? Much like I didn't understand the significance of Anzac Day because it was just an event that took place uh, 100 years ago. Well, Easter took place 2,000 years ago. Not a single person is still alive that witnessed what took place then. And I'm wondering how many of us look at Easter and go, long weekend, amazing. I get to have time to do whatever I want to do, go down south, have my space. Now, listen to me. I have got nothing against using your long weekend well. Nothing at all. Please, if you've got plans, don't cancel them on, 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 because of what I've just said. There's no one I'm trying to say. I don't think God really cares too much about the date, but I think He cares about what is going on in our hearts. And I'm wondering whether we understand the significance in here to the point where it's like, oh my gosh, how could I have treated it that way? I'm not saying that I'm ever going to go to a dawn service. I might. I might not. But at least I appreciate. At least I understand. I value what took place. And the truth is that as much as Jesus died a criminal's death that wasn't justified by the, peop- uh, uh, by the law, if you will, that doesn't make that very spectacular. But the truth is that even though Jesus had no accusations that could stick to him, his execution was actually justified. And it was justified because of a whole other reason that I think sometimes we fail to remember its significance. And so we have Jesus dying on the cross, and it looks like that's, that's the picture and that's what's taking place. But did you know that there was a whole other battle, a whole other war that was being fought in that very moment? And that was a war between Jesus and sin. Jesus was fighting a battle against sin on our behalf. And honestly, I think that sometimes I forget what sin is all about. I forget the enemy that Jesus was fighting against. Because sin sometimes just becomes about whether you're doing something right or something wrong. You murder someone, sin. You lie, sin. You steal, sin. You, you have sexual immorality, sin. And we kind of equate sin with actions, yeah? And so many of us, most of us, yeah, we do have some things that we do that we shouldn't do. But most of the time, we don't really consider ourselves that sinful. Honestly, like, I don't think any of us are like, oh my gosh, I'm such a bad person and you're whipping yourself. And No, no, I think most of us go, yeah, I don't think I'm that bad a human being. But I think that's the false understanding of sin. And if we don't understand the enemy that Jesus is fighting against, the battle becomes a lot less significant. You know what I mean? But if we understand the significance of sin and the significance of the enemy that Jesus fought on our behalf, suddenly the picture becomes a lot clearer. And so let's go into the Bible. 
And let's look into Genesis 4, uh, verses 1 to 12. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you can read that in your time. Let me just set it up for you. This is one chapter after what we as Christians call the fall. Kind of a big deal. Basically, God created Adam and Eve, put them in this garden called Eden, which is a utopia. It was a beautiful place. It was just amazing, simply amazing. Uh, they had everything that they wanted. And Jesus only told them, you're not supposed to eat of the tree, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, we all know the story, or many of us know the story. The serpent comes in. This is my serpent, by the way. Serpent comes in, starts to talk to them, and he goes, da-da-da-da-da, lies to them, all that kind of stuff. And suddenly they, they, they go, okay, I'm going to eat of the fruit. So they eat of the fruit. And in that moment, they invited sin into the world. All right? That's something that's very important to know. They invited sin into the world. At the same time, eating of that fruit opened their eyes. The Bible tells us this. You can read about it in Genesis 3. Um, and, and it says they, their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. Now, it didn't mean that Adam and Eve were blind up to that point physically. They were always naked. That was the way that God intended. Whole other sermon for another day. But in that moment, their eyes were open in a different way. They were open to shame. Suddenly, they experienced new emotions and new perspectives that they never really saw before. And those perspectives brought in that shame and caused them to want to cover themselves up to the point when God came to visit them in that garden, they, 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 they were so afraid because of their nakedness and their shame that they were hiding from God. That was what was taking place. And because of that sin, they were uh, kicked out of the garden because they were, there was a consequence to our actions. And so they, the consequence was that they weren't allowed in that garden anymore. And then so life goes on and they have kids. They have these brothers and their names were Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. And so we are picking it up from chapter 4. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. This was the first time in the whole entire Bible that sin is mentioned. If you understand that the first time a concept is mentioned in the Bible is the, the, the foundational point of that concept, then we can understand that sin is being established as a concept in this passage. And um, if you go on to the story, basically Cain um, seems to disregard what God says. He kills his brother and it becomes another big, like, why are you doing that kind of a moment. God's kind of Asian sometimes in my mind. But, but when, when I look at this passage, when, when, when God says to Cain, why are you angry? Why are you downcast? Sin is crouching at your door. I got this perspective as, as a younger Christian that God had a problem with anger. That God was calling anger sin. And I used to think, and maybe you do as well, that, that God's a bit unreasonable. You know? 
I don't get to switch anger on and off. Anyone ever felt angry and someone asked you, why are you angry? He's like, oh, I forgot. I left my anger switch on. I'm all good. <laughs> if anything, if you go to a person that's angry and say, why are you angry? Like, well, let me tell you why. <laughs> you know, it blows up in your face. So it feels like God's kind of like, don't you understand humanity? You created us and you don't know how anger works. You're a bit of a silly God. You know what I mean? That, that's how I used to think about it. But then I suddenly had this perspective, right? That if Adam and Eve only had their eyes open a little while ago, and they never really understood the emotions or the desires that were new because of their eyes opening, perhaps God is actually coaching Cain through something that is very different something that was quite unexplainable, that even his parents in that moment, it was still new to them. I feel like God was showing me quite a different perspective on what he was trying to do. God was actually coming to Cain and he was saying, all right, son, you know that boiling feeling that you have inside of you? That's called anger. Remember, that's what anger feels like. You know that depression, that sense like, oh, inside, that's... We call it downcast. Your soul is downcast. Now take note, that's what those things are. And those things are going to stir up certain thoughts, desires, actions in you. And when they get stirred up in you, choose to do what is right. Because when you choose to do what is right, you will be accepted. Which, by the way, I know that's what you were looking for, son. Because the reason for your anger and downcastness, let's just call it depression. Downcast is such a long word. Your anger and depression is because you did not feel accepted. So you can feel acceptance if you do what is right. Pretty cool, huh? I don't think God doesn't understand us. I think God extremely understands us. Totally bad grammar right now. But God understands. God God knew that Cain was struggling with anger and depression and did not even recognize it. How many times in your life have you just kind of gone into a thought spiral and you didn't even realize what you were really feeling or what you were really thinking until you got to a point where it was like, oh, what, what has happened? Oh, I was angry. You know, I noticed a few years ago, a long time ago, about 10 years ago, I, rec I recognize that when I'm really angry, I'm actually lightheaded. <laughs> and I used to think that I was just like, I don't know, hit by a vertigo bug or something like that. No, I actually recognize now when I go lightheaded, I walk away from people because that's anger. And I want to choose to do what is right because the lightheaded Nate is not a Nate you want to see. Lightheaded Nate is nasty. And so I recognize that now, but you know what? I had lived for 20 odd years before then without recognizing that that's what anger feels like inside of me. And all of us have these emotional moments where our thought spirals lead us to think things and desire certain things and, and think that we need to act in certain ways. And guess what? God understands. And God came to, to Cain and he said, recognize that because in that moment you still have a choice. You have a choice between doing what is right and what is wrong. And then he goes on to say, 
But if you do what is wrong, sin is crouching at your door. Now, that also stuck with me for a little while. I mean, I read this a while ago because I used to think that when you do what is wrong, that is sin. Sin is in your door. But God said, but if you do what is wrong, sin is crouching at your door. And then it goes on to say, it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Suddenly, God put on my heart an understanding that sin almost has, has some human qualities to it. Sin has direction. Sin has desires. Sin is strategic. Sin acts out of sin's own Desires, almost like a person, Voldemort, sin, you can almost see it and imagine it. And suddenly I started to realize that when we think that our bad actions are sin, we simplify sin. We start to think that, oh, it's not that bad, big a deal. The truth is, Sin is much more insidious. Sin is much more sublime. Sin is much, it's hard to explain it, but sin is much more than just our actions. Sin, sin desires to have you. I started to look into the Hebrew meaning behind these words, desires to have you. And the picture is of an, a beast devouring its prey. It's like full on Lion, I need to say elephant jumping on a deer. It doesn't work that way. No, uh, a lion chasing down its prey, chasing it down, finding its weak spot when it's not part of a tribe. You know, it's running off by itself. I managed to detach it. I'm going to chase it down because I'm going to have some lunch. And it also has this connotation of dominion. Desires to have you has this connotation of exercising power over. It desires to devour you and exercise power over you. And then God says, but you can rule over it. It's kind of a strange thought. But I get this picture that sin is much bigger than just our wrongdoing. Sin is actually almost like this drawing into a different lifestyle. In fact, one of the other translations, if you read the English Standard Version of our Bible, it says that sin's desires are contrary to you. Sin's desires are going to take you in the opposite direction of who you are meant to be, of your God-given design. Sin is the enemy of our soul. Sin desires to entrap you and to put you in a lifestyle that couldn't be more different to how God designed you to be. He designed you in a specific way, and, 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 and sin enters the world and starts to exercise dominion and pull us away. Do you know in psychology there's this really interesting thought that if you want to motivate someone, you don't motivate them by slapping them or simply giving them cash. The best way to motivate someone is to help them to see that they really want it. And sin motivates us not by simply 
slapping us across the head or, uh, 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 or, or, or simply dishing out rewards, it starts to get in there and says, but you really want it. When the serpent came to Eve, it wasn't like, I want you to have it. It was, no, 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 you, you really want that. You really want that, don't you? You know you want it. You can't stop thinking about it. It's there. It's yours. It's within your reach. Why don't you do it? You can do it. Sin motivates us in a way that many of us don't see and many of us don't know. Story of every single one of our lives. It's not that God created us sinful. It's that over time, sin has pulled us so far away from God's design for our lives through kind of stirring up these desires and stuff inside of us. And it brings us to this point of death. See, in Romans 1, 28 to 32, this is what Paul writes about sin. It says, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Sin, contrary to you. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. All the parents say, Amen. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also prove of those who practice them. When it says God gave them over to a depraved mind, it wasn't that God went, you know what, I'm going to find the greatest evil in the world and give you over. He was simply saying, I can't fight against sin if you don't want to fight against sin. So I'm just going to get out of this picture and allow you to see the fullness of what sin produces in you. This is completely contrary to you, by the way. This is taking you so far from the life that I created for you, that I designed from you, that even though you think you're fulfilling your desires, you're still empty. Even though you eat whatever you want, you're still hungry. Even though you drink whatever you want, you're still thirsty. Even though all the desires that you are saying, I want, I want, I want, is insatiable, you are still searching for something more. Why? Because you're living contrary to you. You are living under the influence of sin. When we understand sin in that kind of a way, and when we understand that when Jesus came to earth, his whole battle was against that sin, we start to get this picture that God is not insensitive to you, that God is not distant from you. God is actually so close to you, pursuing you, that he wants to show you that there is a better life. The whole point of today's message is that because He lives, I am free. I am free because the greatest oppressor of humankind is sin. It crouches at your door. And then the moment you open the door a little bit, its foot is in. And where sin is, death is. Read the Bible. Where sin is, death is. Where sin is, death is. If you think you're doing your relationship and you're trying to hide things under the carpet and there's sin there, let me tell you, death is also there. You might not see it straight away. I'm not looking at anyone, by the way. 
I'm kind of looking at that picture up there because I don't like that picture. So when you allow sin into your life, you're allowing death into your life. That relationship, that habit, your job, when you allow sin in, you allow death in. Maybe not straight away in a way that you recognize. But this is the law. Let me explain to you what I mean by it's the law. Romans 8, 1-4. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through, because through Christ Jesus, the Lord, the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is not a written code. It's just the way that things work. Just like the law of gravity doesn't have to be written down. The law of gravity states that you are going to be pulled towards earth at this mass. No, no, it just happens. It's a principle. Where you bring law, or sorry, where you bring sin, you bring death. And what it says is that Christ is the one that is setting us free from that law. It goes on to say, for what the law was powerless to do because he was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be met, fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. You see, what it means here by the law was, was made powerless by the flesh is that when God spoke to Cain and he says, it desires to have you but you must rule over it. That was the key there. There's two ways around this. Sin rules you, you rule sin. Guess what? We failed. We failed miserably. Bloodshed, wars, envy, deceit, lies, murdering, stealing, jealousy, rage. That's what marks our humanity. We don't rule sin. Sin has been ruling us for thousands of years. But in that moment, when you see it this way, that God created us for this pathway. And because of sin, we became contrary to that pathway. The logical thing for God to do is to say, let's start over. The logical thing is like, why live on with this fight? God didn't do that. God sent Jesus. You know, a little while ago I said that Jesus' death was justified. Why it was justified is because when he hung on that cross, he took on our sin. With sin comes death. Jesus died. Took the punishment upon himself so that we do not have to go through the same. So now that when we come to God, when we say, God, I want you to be my Lord and Savior, it's now no condemnation. Why? Because God doesn't see sin in me anymore. It was nailed to the cross with Jesus. But the good news doesn't stop there. See, in Hebrews 7, 24 to 25, it says this, Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely. Oh, I love that. Jesus is able to save Jesus is able to take the worst you. He's able to handle the you 
that you don't want anyone to ever know about. Jesus is able to take you on your worst day and then some. Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Intercede is a word that means stand in a gap. That means that even though we are contrary to where we are supposed to be, that we are meant to be standing here, but because of sin, we are now living contrary and we are over here. There is this massive gap uh, where we are supposed to be. God is standing. Jesus is standing in that gap and saying, God is seeing me here the way that he designed me to be. So if you are feeling like a sinner, if you are feeling condemned, guess what? God doesn't see you in this space. When you invite Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior, that is how God sees you. He sees you in the ultimate design. You, you are like German manufactured. You've got an engine that could deal with any road. You've got tires that could go over the water. You've got, you know, you're, you're, you're the perfectly engineered for the life that God has called you to. And even though there is a gap, Jesus stands in that gap so that he sees me over here. Jesus' death dealt with the penalty of our sin. Jesus' resurrection gives us a bridge over our gaps. Jesus stands in that gap. When you think about Easter, it's not just about a long weekend. It's not about... Even just, oh, how sad that someone died a death that was, you know, un I guess unlawful. It's about the fact that Jesus sacrificed, God sacrificed to overthrow the dominion of sin over our lives. He fought the battle that has eternal consequences. Throwing off that sin. And so now the Bible tells us, Run. Run without allowing sin to entangle because you don't have to stand here. Don't stand under the, the dominion of sin. See, even as a Christian, I, I still have this choice. I still have this choice on a daily basis. Do I want to allow God to take me into the fullness of what He has for me or do I still want to be living contrary to me? We never used to have that choice. But because of Jesus, we do. In the sense that we were overpowered. We were like a deer all by ourselves with a lion, a hungry lion staring at us. But then Jesus comes in with his rifle. And oh, Enemy is like a roaring lion, but it has no bite. That's what Jesus has done for us. This should stir something up in you, people. This should stir something up inside. It's not about whether you do right or you do wrong. It's about the fact that all of us have this sense that I'm not quite who I think I can be. That there's a gap between me right now and real me. The more I go through life, the more I'm like, I'm actually so far away. <laughs> the more I go through life, the more I'm like, I thought I made some progress in this. 
And the more I go through life, the more I wonder, God, why didn't you just wipe me out? Wouldn't that have been easier? But that's not the God that we serve. That's the significance of Easter. If you can get the ban up. Right now, I'd love to give you an opportunity to invite Jesus into your life, to be your Lord and your Savior. I've got not much else to say about this topic, and I pray that the Holy Spirit is working on your heart. If there's a little bit of a, oh, in your spirit, it's because the Holy Spirit is trying to say to you, let me in. I love that Jesus in Revelation, he, he talks to, to John and he says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. Sin crouches at the door, waiting to pounce. Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. What are you opening your heart to? If you've never opened your heart to Jesus before, can I lead you in a prayer? A prayer that will invite Jesus in, that will open up a way for you to stop being by yourself in contrary you and start to live in real you. Knowing that the battle has been fought, the battle has been won, the victory is ours in Jesus' name. God's not asking you to fight on for him to accept you. God said, I fought so that you will always be acceptable to me. So if you would like to say this prayer, you just have to repeat after me. Everyone, just close your eyes, bow your heads, have this moment, think about where you're at. Is your door open to sin or is your door open to Jesus? And if everyone can say this prayer after me, dear Jesus, I know that I have sinned. I know that I have lived contrary to who I'm meant to be. I invite you into my life, Jesus. Be my Lord and my Savior. Wash me clean. Make me whole. Amen. Thank you for tuning in today. If you would like to find out more about Lyft, check out our website at theliftchurch.com.au.